The application stuff's a little easier to understand, isn't it? Well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Uh, thank you for this time we have in your word. Father, you know that um, even as I stand here, my heart is heavy for Serenje. I pray that uh, you would grant me grace to uh, teach your word this morning, Father. And I know it is only because of you and through you that I can. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Paul is going to talk a little bit about what it means to be truly spiritual in this final chapter of Galatians. And so I thought I'd open with a story I read this week about a man named Simeon the Stylite. Now, Simeon, I don't know what stylite means. Uh, because he was a recluse, I don't think it had anything to do with his wardrobe. I don't think, you know, he was really styling or a nappy dress or anything like that. Uh, he was a, a monkish recluse, and, and around A.D. 423, he built himself a six-foot pole on the edge of the Syrian desert and lived on top of it for six years. He said because he wanted to grow spiritually, he wanted to be free to commune with God in peace and, uh, and that way grow more spiritual. Which prompted one author to ask, is there child care in the desert? Because really, truly, I, I can't live on top of a pole, even if I wanted to, which I don't. Because my life is not lived out on top of a pole in the, on the edge of a desert, but rather it's lived out in, in fast-paced 21st century America with household chores and family duties and shuttling children and, and, and doing Bible study. And I'm sure very much your lives are the same way. Uh, and so if that's the only way that we can be spiritual, I'm sunk. Uh, and I would imagine most of us are. So Paul is going to give us a little bit different view of how we become spiritual women. Paul has just exhorted us to walk in, to be led by, and to keep in step with the Spirit of God who lives within us. And so he begins in chapter 6 to unpack what that means for our lives as we walk in the Spirit. In essence, as I thought about this, chapter 6 is the practical application of the application of chapter 5. He's going to show us what it means uh, to be a spiritual woman of God. And, and the picture that Paul paints is very different. Uh, the picture of spirituality is very different from the picture that we get from the world. The world sees uh, spirituality as going on a retreat or a pilgrimage or getting in touch with something inside of us or, or outside of us like the universe. This is the big thing now. Give it back to the universe, like the universe can do anything about my problems. Um, don't want to believe in a personal God, but I'm willing to believe in the universe, an inanimate object. So, you know, getting in touch with the universe or a dead relative or something like that, that that's, that's how the world tends to view spirituality. But Paul tells us that true Christian spirituality is based on a relationship with a personal God who has spoken his eternal word to us in his son Christ. Spirituality is defined by the character and the existence of God. And so we can only learn of that spirituality then through his word. It's not something that we can produce in ourselves. 
It's not something that we can uh, press certain buttons and do a certain ritual or do a certain method and out, it's not like a spiritual vending machine, you know? I put my money in and out comes the candy bar. No, it's not like that. It's not something we can produce in, our, in ourselves any more than any one of the hundreds of trees in and around my yard can force themselves to produce leaves and nuts and acorns every year. Actually, sometimes they take a year off, and we're always grateful for the year that they take off. Um, spiritual life flows from the Spirit of God. It is God's harvest in our lives. Uh, the God that lives in and works in and around us is the one that grows that spiritual fruit. We can cultivate the soil of our hearts, but the harvest belongs to God. He is the only one that can work in us. He causes the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to grow in our lives. Now, what is the purpose of this fruit then? What is the purpose of this growing in spirituality? It's not so that we can say, hey, look at my fruit. Isn't this organic kindness huge? You know, that's not the purpose of the fruit. The purpose of the fruit is twofold. The purpose is to glorify God. And the second purpose, as Paul will get into in chapter 6, is so that we might serve others, especially within the community of faith. And as Philip Ryken puts it, being spiritual means that we one another, each other. We take care of each other. So beginning in verse 1, he's going to talk about, I'll need you to help me out here, Julie. Um, he's going to talk about restoring those. So in verse 1, he says, brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. So uh, spiritual people restore one another from sin. And, and Dr. Philip Ryken says that every word in this verse is important. The first word is brothers. Immediately Paul reminds them that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are part of the family of God. And those whom they are restoring are also part of the family of God. They are their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, you who are spiritual... Um, which means mature, or one that exhibits the fruit, specifically fruit like kindness and, and, and um, patience and gentleness. Those are the people that should do this work of restoration. Those who have experienced enough of life to be gracious. Uh, I believe that through the experiences of my life, particularly, and, and those of you who have been with me for a long time, uh, know that Royal Family Kids Camp, I, I could not overestimate the impact that has had on me, and I know it's made me a more gracious person. I still have a long ways to go, but it's those experiences that make us realize, you know what, I'm really not all together. In fact, I'm not even close. And so that gives us a gentleness when dealing with other people who are broken as we are broken. Uh, and we are to restore them how? We're to restore them gently. And honestly, and this was written in one of the commentaries I read, and I almost didn't say it because it sounds harsh, but really, honestly, I think it's true. If we can't do it gently, it'd be better for us not to do it at all, honestly, if we're not going to be gentle in restoring a person who is caught in sin. Now, that doesn't mean caught in the act of sin. It means trapped by their own sin. 
caught feeling helpless, like a, like a fish in a net, um, like little Nemo <laughs> being plucked from the water and caught and trapped in, um, in their own sin. And uh, so, so the picture being paint, painted here is not someone who's rampantly unrepentant. That I'm just going to sin, however I want to sin, and y'all can't do anything about it. It's not that kind of sin. It's like, I need help. I'm trapped by this. And so we're not talking about someone who's just wantonly walking away from God. Uh, so there's, there are methods of dealing with them, but that's not for this passage. The purpose of this restoration is to bring people back into fellowship with God and with the rest of the body of Christ. The purpose is always to restore. In fact, the word uh, for restore, someone who's constant, you, should, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, is that first K word that I can't pronounce. But what it means is to return to its former condition. And it was used of setting broken bones. That a bone that was broken was restored. It was returned to its former condition. And that's sometimes a painful process. Um, but, it, it, but, you know, you don't go in there and go, here, let me set that, <clears throat> you know. And I've seen guys do that on the football field where they put their shoulder back in, and it's not pretty. But, but to return to its former um, condition. And, and um, those caught in sin need that kind of restoration, need that kind uh, of being set back in order. Now, my question as I, as I read about this was, as, as a, as a, not as a church, just a church here, but do believers generally do this? I don't think we do. I don't think we do. I think we have three methods most often of dealing with this. The first one is just to ignore it to act like it's not there, you know, that elephant in the room, and I don't see you, I don't know what's going on. Kind of like a timid med student that sees a badly broken bone and goes, I'm too scared to try and touch that. I may do more damage than good. Or sometimes I think we hide behind, didn't Jesus say don't judge? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Yeah, he's the same guy that in Matthew 18 laid out the way that we approach people who are sinning. Uh, and so that's, that's just a, a cop-out, I think, a lot of times. Our second method, uh, oftentimes, of, of dealing with this is let's just gossip about it instead. Let's just say, would you look at that bone? It's hanging out. It's, oh, that's gross. I'm so glad I don't have a broken bone like that. And we, you know, sometimes we couch that in terms of a prayer request. Pray for our sister. Did you know what she's doing? <laughs> not, not helpful at all. And, and sometimes I believe that, that we harshly condemn someone, you know, that, that doesn't need condemnation. There's that, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We harshly condemn them and say, you know, something like, you just need Jesus and I'm going to shun you until you come back to Jesus. You know, no, they need to be restored gently. All of those are, are d- destructive ways of dealing with those in, in need of gentle, restorative discipline. Uh, and true, gentle, restorative discipline is hard, and I think probably rare as well. But instead of ignoring or gossiping or condemning a brother and sister in Christ, love requires that we gently restore them uh, to God and, and to the body, while remembering that we too are sinners in need of a Savior. Um, now, if they refuse to be restored, 
That's an issue for Matthew 18, and if I ever teach Matthew, we'll get to that then. So a spiritual person restores, gently restores those who are in sin. Now in the second verse, he talks about carrying each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So spiritual people bear one another's burdens. Some burdens are just too heavy to be carried alone. And you know grief and worry and doubt and failure and poverty and loneliness and illness and divorce and disability and addiction and depression are all loads that are too too heavy to be carried alone. And if you've struggled with any of these, and, and I imagine that most of us have, then you know that that we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us in those times. Now, there is, there is a truth to the fact that we are to and that we can cast our cares on God. That's what um, Psalm 55, 22 says. We can cast our cares on Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. But truly, one of the most common ways that God helps us in our burdens is to bring brothers and sisters in Christ alongside us to help us carry them. Um, one of my dearest friends, and I'm sorry she's not here today, but she's probably glad when she's about to find out that I mentioned her, is Elissa Vilter. And I met Elissa nearly 10 years ago, and here's how I met her. She started coming to MOPS. Yes, yeah, so 10 years ago I was in MOPS, get that. I was like the oldest living MOP by the time I quit. <laughs> I told them all, once I get uh, women in my discussion group that I'm old enough to be their mother, I'm gone. And it happened, and I left. Uh, but anyway, um, not in the middle of mops or anything. Uh, and, and Elissa joined mops in January or February of 2003, which was the very point at which my father was dying of Alzheimer's, and I backed out of, of mops for a month or two during that time. And she heard her first mop, she heard this announcement about this discussion group leader named Amy Kieser, who, uh, was, uh, whose father was dying of Alzheimer's. And, and less than a year earlier, she had lost her mother to cancer. And so she wrote me a note and sent it to me. And I got this note, and I read this note, and I had, had no idea who this woman was. But by the way she told me that she was praying for me, I knew she really was. There's a handful of notes. Yours is one of them, Jan. There's a handful of notes that I put in a box to keep uh, from that time when my, my father died. That was one of them. Didn't even know the woman. And, and so I began asking people, would somebody please introduce me to this Elissa Vittler woman? <laughs> Elissa Vilter woman? Uh, I need to know who she is. And we met, and I'll never forget meeting her. She, without even knowing me, but because she loved Jesus and had compassion on what I was going through, showed uh, me mercy and helped bear my burden during that time. That's how we one another each other, and it is so important. This bearing one another's burdens means at least two things for the body of Christ. The first one is that we need to stand ready and willing to bear others' burdens. We need to allow our shoulders to be broad enough and our schedules to be clear enough to help. But the second thing is, ladies, and hear this, because this is equally important. We need to be willing to allow others to share our burdens. 
There is nothing spiritual about someone who thinks she is too strong to lean on someone else. It is only pride that causes us to think that way. I heard a story actually fairly recently, didn't know this. I knew that my maternal grandmother, Frances Dutton, who we, whom we called Mama, because in our family, the first grandchild names the grandparents. Um, that can be a problem. But, but we called her Mama. That's my older sister's fault. And she had a brother, Edward. And I knew that she and Edward at some point had had a falling out and never did reconcile, which is very, very sad. Uh, but I never knew why until fairly recently my sister Georgianne told me that Mama, who had, um, whose, whose parents were ill and her brother couldn't go to college unless she helped pay for it, put off her own wedding, put, she was engaged to my grandfather, in order to work as a teacher and put Edward through school so that he could get an education. And I don't know how many years that was that, that she put that off, but she put it off for a number of years. And years later, when he was receiving an award, he became a very successful businessman in Chicago. And, and he was receiving an award, and he invited her up, and she was there at the dinner, and he gave his speech. And at this dinner, he said, I am a self-made man. I got where I am on my own. Nobody helped me. Nobody, I did build that. Nobody helped me get here. And my grandmother thought, I put my life off for four years so that you could have an education. And they never spoke to one another again through the rest of her life. That is pride that says, I don't need someone else to help me. We need each other in the body of Christ to bear our burdens. And then he says, when we do this, when we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ, which is, which is interesting. We talked about this last week. Aren't we free from the law? Yes, we are free from the law as a means of justification. But God's moral law is still his eternal standard, still his holy standard for our lives. And, and our desire, as we realize who we are in Christ, should be to fill that law. And Jesus said, and Paul said something similar in chapter 5, that the whole of the law is summed up in this, love God and love people. And surely one of the most extraordinary, one of the most important ways that we can love one another is by bearing one another's burdens. So in that way we fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, God showed his love for us in sending his son. And the son bore our burden of sin on the cross because he loved us. And it was a burden that only he could bear. So spiritual people restore one another gently. Spiritual people bear one another's burdens. And now he's going to tell us that spiritual people consider others better than themselves. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. So spiritual people consider others more important. Loving one another requires sacrifice. Bearing one another's burdens requires sacrifice. And sacrifice demands that we consider others more important than ourselves. It is easy. You just drive down the interstate. Our default position is I'm more important. And wherever I'm going is more important than you, so I am going to cut you off to get there. I'm going to, this. I know this lane is closing, but I'm going to get up to the very end and cut over because I am more important. That's our default position. I uh, was reminded of a story that I'd forgotten 
from years ago, when, and maybe you've heard this, but um, Muhammad Ali was on an airplane back when he was Muhammad Ali and not a broken man. And the stewardess said, um, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And his answer was, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, sir, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> I don't think he considered others more important than himself. And the other thing he tells us in this is that comparing ourselves to others is deadly. When we compare ourselves to others, particularly in the body of Christ, it leads to one of two things. It either leads to sinful pride. I told you last week that I had to stop listening, and I did listen just a little bit this week, I'll just confess, to uh, some political talk shows. Uh, but years ago, years and years and years ago, when I first started staying home with the kids, while they were napping, I'd listen to Dr. Laura. Sometimes while I was ironing, like twice while I was ironing. And, um, and I'd listen to Dr. Laura. I don't know if you've ever listened to Dr. Laura, but I realized finally that my, the reason, I would stand there and think, have you never listened to her? Don't you know you're going to get smacked down by this? But, but the reason I stopped listening to her is I realized that the, the thing that I really liked about listening to her is it made me feel good about me. Well, you know what? I may be messed up, but I'm not that messed up. I'm a whole lot better than that person. It led to sinful pride within me. I'm not trying to convict you about anything. I'm just telling you that, that, um, that I realized that that sort of comparison led to sinful pride in my own life. Or it leads to depression and inaction because we begin to think, well, I'm not smart enough or strong enough or whatever enough like she is to do that. So instead, I'll just... I'll just do nothing. Well, that is, is not what we've been called to do. God has gifted each of us in a unique way to serve him. And therefore, we, we can be confident of who we are in Christ and that he will uh, equip us to do what he's called us to do. Now, he says, then you can take pride. And, and that kind of just leaps off the page, take pride. You know, isn't that a bad thing? And he doesn't mean sinful pride. I'd like to make two points about what he's talking about there. First of all, he's talking about comparing ourselves to others. And so he's saying, do your own task. Don't look over at the person next to you. Do the task that God has called you to do. Concentrate on your own tasks. And then secondly, live in such a way that praiseworthy characteristics are exhibited in your life so that others around you might see that fruit of the Spirit in your life. And then, just after he said, bury one another's burdens, he says each one must carry his own load. So which is it? Is that a contradiction? Well, the two words used there for burden and for load are two completely different words. For burden, the word is baros. And for, for um, load, the word is fortune. And the word baros means a weight that must be shared because it's too heavy. When we moved our piano from our former house to this house, my husband and, and several of my hefty nephews just about broke the piano to get it there. When we moved it uh, not too long ago from our living room to our den down seven stairs, we hired professionals to move that puppy because it was too heavy, even for one, not just for one person, but for several people to move. That word fortune is a word that was used for a man's traveling pack like his backpack um, on, on his back. It's a, it's a load meant for a, a single person. 
So then what is he talking about carrying our load? I, I believe that portion, that load, is the weight of our responsibility before God. In other words, we are accountable to do what God has called us to do, and we need to bear that load ourselves. We cannot be spiritual freeloaders. Yeah, God called me to do that, but I'm just going to let that, I'm just going to push that off to someone else. This is how Philip Ryken puts it. He says, so do your own work. Do it without comparing yourself to anyone else, and do it well. For one day you will have to answer to God both for what you have done and for what you have left undone. And then finally he says that spiritual people share with others. Uh, he says anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. So spiritual people provide for those who teach them. This, of course, is, is talking about providing materially for those in the church who teach. And specifically, I believe, it is speaking to pastors. However, just in case you would think it includes me, I've left a collection plate at the back, <laughs> if any of you feel led. And, and it says all good things, so that's not just cash. You're welcome to leave the keys to your Lexus, tickets to Disney World, whatever you'd like to leave. I used to have a, a friend, actually I was his manager because I had a crush on him, um, but he was a singer. And when it came time for the free will offering, he would always uh, thank people for giving, and then he'd say, and don't let Satan tell you you can't write a $3,000 check. <laughs> I, I, more importantly and seriously, um, the work of pastors is hard. I remember years ago talking to someone who will remain nameless about um, the compensation we were giving our pastors and he, our pastor, and his comment was, well, I think that's pretty good pay. He only works one day a week. No. No, he does not. And I can tell you just from doing this much, which is not nearly as much as a pastor does for a sermon, it's, I'll be honest, I've never said this out loud, it's about a 20-hour-a-week job for me. Uh, and so this alone is a part-time job. And I have none of the, I don't have to visit anyone in the hospital. I don't have anyone coming to me for counseling. I don't have to worry about how we pay for the lights in the building. It's a big job. Pastors work long, hard, very odd hours. Because if they get a call at 2 in the morning, they've got to be there. And if we are trying to figure out how can we get, a, uh, get away as cheaply as we can with our pastor, we're on the wrong path. And in fact, we'll pay for that. Because Paul's about to say, you're going to reap what you sow. So if you're going to sow a cheap pastor, you're going to get a cheap pastor out of that. Or an unhappy one. And that's maybe worse. So then Paul goes on to say that God cannot be mocked. Do not be deceived. God is, cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. I'm going to go on to eight. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. The lie is, and because sometimes we don't see the harvest right away, people believe the lie, that I can sin and it won't really affect me. Nobody will ever know. And I can get away with it. Or worse, you know what? There will always be time for me to get right with God. I can do that when I'm older. I can do that on my deathbed. I can do that whenever. And that's a lie. That's a dangerous lie that we believe. We cannot turn our noses up at God. People have tried. No one's ever succeeded. Think about Goliath. He thought he had the world on a string, but he did not. 
None have gotten away with mocking God. It may seem as though they are, but they, what they have sown will catch up to them, if not in this life, in the life to come. Um, this is a true story, absolutely true story. I don't know if it's any longer there if you ever visit St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota, but <clears throat> a number of years ago, in the middle stall on the first floor of the library, the one or two times I went there, there was scrawled on the wall the, two, something that two people had written. The first person wrote on the stall wall, um, God is dead, Nietzsche which was a famous saying of a philosopher named Nietzsche who believed that God was dead, that there was no God. So, so the first person wrote, God is dead, Nietzsche. The second person wrote, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> God cannot be mocked. And, and for our purposes, I want to quote my, probably my favorite writer, uh, her name, and she just recently married, her last name is now Peterson, which is really helpful because her first name is, I think, Andre or Andre, I'm not sure, and her last name was S-E-U. How do you pronounce S-E-U? Sounds like an acronym, S-E-U, something Peterson. And she has a, a list of aphorisms, which are just like, um, almost like proverbs that she's written herself. All of them are wonderful. But here's one that I've remembered oftentimes. God is the better chess player, just obey. And that's what we need to do, not try to mock God, because it cannot be done. So then he talks about sowing and reaping in this contrast of sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit. In chapter 5, Paul talked about our two, our, our two natures are at war with one another. Our spiritual nature and our sinful nature are at war with one another. And he said we need to crucify our sinful nature. We need to kill it, not coddle it. One day that war between our natures will end, but on this planet it continues. So he says those who sow to the sinful nature will reap corruption or reap destruction. Well, what is that sinful nature? I'm going to read to you actually this. The first part of this quote is from Dr. Terry Johnson, and then he quotes John Stott. And I think this defines sowing to the sinful nature better than I ever could. Terry Johnson says if one sows to the flesh, that is, who lives for the here and now, lives to satisfy temporal desires, who lives as though this world were all there is, will in the end reap corruption. And then he quotes, begins to quote uh, Dr. John Stott, to sow to the flesh is to pander it, to cosset it, cuddle and stroke it instead of crucifying it. And then Dr. Stott goes on to say, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up pray and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. And, and in so doing, he says, we reap destruction, we reap corruption. That word for destruction is decay almost like a rotting corpse. That's a graphic word to use. But that is exactly what sowing to our flesh leads to. Our lives, our bodies, our souls decay when we sow to the flesh. And as Dr. Ryken puts it, in the end, living for selfish pleasure yields the miserable harvest of eternal death. Sin proves to be self-destructive. Those who are who are sowing to the flesh are dying 
and they don't even know it. Maybe they do when they're alone at night. But, and, and you know what, this is, and I, I can't prove this theologically, but I was thinking about how, you know how we talked about that, that when we have eternal life, when we come to Christ, that that eternal life begins in some sense now. I think that eternal death begins in some sense now too. That they are decaying inside. Um, and then it, sa it says, but those who sow to the Spirit reap eternal life. What does sowing to the Spirit mean? It means cultivating the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control by all those things that we talked about last week through God's word and through prayer and through worship and fellowship and all those things. Sowing to the Spirit means living for God and his glory rather than for our own pleasure. This is, this is how uh, Dr. Philip Ryken uh, defines it. He says, every time we think a thought, speak a word, or perform a deed, we plant a seed. Every time we think, say, or do anything for the glory of God, we are sowing to the Spirit. Um, so we are to sow to the Spirit, and, and, and thereby, not because we have sown to the Spirit, but because we are believers, and that is why we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. Now, some people might say uh, and wonder, well, why am I not growing in my faith? I mean, why, why do I seem so stuck? And, and here's the answer. The answer is because holiness is a harvest. It's not a formula. We must sow to the Spirit in order for God to reap that harvest, to grow that harvest within us. It would be like a farmer going out to his field at harvest time and going, why don't I have a crop? Well, you didn't plant anything. Or what you planted were weeds. And if you plant weeds, you're going to get weeds. And so holiness is a harvest. And, and spiritual, any kind of farming, is hard work. It doesn't come by osmosis. It comes by sowing to the Spirit and God causing that to grow. So then he says, do not grow weary. In verses 9 and 10 he says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Farming is hard work. I have never been around farming. I'm kind of glad of that. But I think those who did grow up on a farm have some of the best work ethics I've ever seen because farming is hard work. Spiritual farming, cultivating our spiritual soul, can also be hard work, and we can become downtrodden because of that through illness or not seeing results or trials or sometimes just the dailiness of life can cause us to lose heart or to grow weary. But Paul says, I promise you, there will be a harvest. God will cause the harvest, so don't give up. A harvest is coming. You know, in, in actual agriculture, there's a lag time. Okay, we don't just like you know, they, they don't just plant and then the next day there's the corn. There's time. And just like there's a lag time in agriculture, there's a lag time spiritually. It's a lifelong process. And I think sometimes we want to be like spiritual chia pet farmers. You know, I put on the seeds, I spread over the stuff, and the next day we have a blooming hedgehog. You know, that's what we want in our lives. And it doesn't work that way. It takes time. So as uh, I love this when Philip Ryken said this, because my brother-in-law often says this, keep on keeping on. My brother-in-law also says, he grew up in the South, he says this, I love this thing, he says, never mind the mule being blind, just drive the wagon. 
<laughs> I want to tell you another true story about a man named Luke Short who lived in the earlier part of uh, our nation. And he came to Christ at the age of 103. 103, he came to Christ while sitting under a tree, meditating on a sermon he had heard. Uh, and he died at the age of 106. His headstone said this, Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. Here's the part you need to remember. That sermon that he was recounting and meditating on, he had heard 85 years earlier in England. That pastor never lived to see his harvest, did he? But the harvest came. God promises us a harvest. And because we know the harvest is coming, because God promises us it will, we need to do good. We need to not lose heart and do good to everyone, those inside and outside the church. But we have a covenantal priority to our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those in the family of God, as we have opportunity to do good. That word for opportunity is the word kairos. It's the one K word I can pronounce. And it means time. It doesn't mean uh, do good when you can get it around to it. You know, do good if you get the opportunity. It means at the opportune time. There's a sense of, of urgency here. It means to seize the opportunity when you have it to do good. Well, we're going to really race through these last few verses at the end, not because they're not important, but uh, because we have to. He says in verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. He had dictated the first part of the letter, and now he takes pen in hand and apparently writes with large letters. Why? We don't know. Some people say that he was making emphasis. Some people say that his eyesight was bad. But we know that, that, that writers often did this at the end of a letter when, um, to, to give it a, a seal of authority, that this was their way of saying this really is Paul writing this. And so him taking uh, pen in hand to write this last part would have been the seal of apostolic authority on the, the letter, the seal of authenticity. And then in verses 12 and 13, he gives the actual uh, motives of the Judaizers. He's kind of summing up the whole letter, isn't he? Here, uh, the, the actual motives of the Judaizers. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. So he gives two reasons here for what the motives for what the Judaizers are doing. First, to avoid persecution. Because here's the deal. As Gentile converts came into the church, the Jewish Christians realized if we can just get them to keep the law, the Jews won't get so upset at us. We, we think of the persecution of the early church as being the Romans, but the first persecutors of the early church, who stoned Stephen? The first martyr was the Jews. And so they were just trying to mollify the Jews. We won't get persecuted if we can just get these guys to get circumcised. Secondly, they wanted to boast in the, in the Galatians. Notches in the Bible and numbers in the pews on Sundays is nothing new. They wanted to win the most converts. Um, and then Paul goes on to say, I glory in the cross of Christ. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. So Paul says, uh, th this word for boast, by the way, there's no good English equivalent. It's this, the last K word there that I can't pronounce. But it means to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, to revel in, 
to live for. So Paul is saying, I glory in the cross. I trust in the cross. I revel in the cross. I live for the cross of Christ. Paul refused to take pride in, to boast about any of his own accomplishments, his many accomplishments, or his own abilities. His only boast was in the cross of Christ. I think, no, more than that, I know we lose the shock value of that because we wear crosses as jewelry. We don't understand, we don't realize that the cross in Paul's day was an object of horror. Uh, it was a horrible thing. In fact, it's impossible for us to realize that as F.F. F. Bruce puts it, the unspeakable horror and loathing which the very mention or thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day. In fact, the word for cross, which was crux, was never even spoken in polite society. Even when a man was condemned to die, they wouldn't say hang him on the cross. They'd say hang him on the unlucky tree. It, was, it, it, it should have been, it was an object of horror, it actually should have been a, a, a source of embarrassment for the early church that their Messiah died on a cross. And yet, Paul not only says, I boast in it, he says it's the only thing worth boasting about. And he says, because of that, I have been crucified to the world. Because of our union with Christ, we talked about this a few years ago, everything Christ has done, we have in some sense done. Because we are in Christ. And therefore, because I am in Christ, then I have died to sin. I have died to death. I have died to the world. This world holds nothing for us. Its godless values, its hopeless pleasures cannot satisfy. Like the popular saying when I was in college, this world is not my home. And every year I live, the more I realize that is true. Paul says all that matters is that we are new creations in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then he says, Grace and mercy, peace and mercy, excuse me, to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Actually, that all who follow this rule and even uh, to the Israel of God are two ways of saying the same thing. Peace and mercy to all who have been crucified in Christ, all who follow Christ, all who are believers who are, in fact, the Israel of God, the true sons and daughters of Abraham. So again, he is summing up uh, so much of what this letter was about. Uh, and then finally, his last words in this letter are, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brothers, amen. So these last two things he says is, first, don't bother me with this anymore. Uh, he really is a spiritual father, isn't he? He's saying, do the right thing. I bear literally on my body scars from doing the right thing. Don't inflict any more pain on me. Do the right thing. And then he ends with grace. What a perfect way to end this letter about our, our salvation being by grace alone in faith alone through Christ alone. It is all of grace. Paul ends, the primary, ends with the primary point of this letter, that we are saved by faith in Christ plus nothing. We are saved, as this letter and the whole of Scripture tell us, 
only by the grace of God in Christ. Well, I'll uh, start next week by introducing Philippians. I was going to do that this week, but I really wanted to end with this thought of boasting in the cross and how wonderful the cross is. I'm going to read first a quote from Philip Ryken where he says, the cross is not just something to boast about, it's the only thing to boast about. The cross is the only thing to boast about because it means that God loves us enough to die for us that he saved us through the death of his own dear son. It means that we have been redeemed, that Christ has paid the whole price for our salvation. The cross means that we have forgiveness for our sins, that Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt. It means that we are justified, that God now accepts us as righteous in his sight. His wrath has been turned away, and now we stand innocent before him, and all because of the wondrous cross of Christ. Probably, probably, my very favorite hymn is called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And so I, I could add nothing to this. I just want to end. I won't sing, but I do want to end. I should have had Mandy sing it uh, with the words of this hymn written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and blood flow mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns uh, compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you that you and only you can turn an object of horror into a means of salvation. May we be so forever grateful for you that we give you our lives, our souls, our all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I should tell you, I'll let you, go ahead and turn that off. Um,